0: Hey guys, this is Saba Long, the host of Where the Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm so excited to bring back our series, Who Runs Atlanta?, where we are featuring this time the at-large candidates for the Atlanta School Board. There are five candidates, and we've got all five doing interviews with us. Take a listen to these interviews and make sure you make an informed choice to vote on or before November 7th. Yes. Alfred, Shivy, Brooks. Yes. Welcome back to the pod.
1: We're back here.
0: Back again. Yes. A little bit of a different set. Yes. Different
1: topic. Yes.
0: But it's still about elections.
1: There it is.
0: We are here to talk about your run for the Atlanta School Board. Yes, ma'am. Before we do that, we always have to have a little bit different, you know, start a little bit different. Right, right, right. So we're bringing back the previous episode, the previous segment, How Atlanta Are You? Okay. But this is going to be kids edition. Come on. Okay. All right. So where's the best place in Atlanta to take a kid?
1: Oh, best place in Atlanta to take a kid. Uh, The Atlanta Zoo or the Aquarium. Okay. One or the other.
0: What's your animal that you're rocking with at the aquarium or the zoo?
1: Um, it's it's the whales, like that blue whale. Uh, you just see this massive being, you know, just gliding through water past you. That is uh, majestic. It, it it uh makes you realize how small you are uh, and how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And then what's the animal that you're like, nope, keep that one away.
1: Oh man, uh, the snakes. Yeah. <laughs> The snake exhibit, <laughs> you go in that little dark situation. This has
0: been the theme. The politicians don't like snakes. Is that what? <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs>
1: okay. Okay. That's I, I can love that.
0: Okay. I don't know what that says about y'all. <laughs> All right. And then tell me your favorite
1: kid's book. Um, Where the Wild Things Are. Max. I wanted, I felt like I was max when I was a kid. That was, that was my jam right there. Yeah,
0: that's a good one. That's a good one. And then if you think about a TV show or a movie that's set in a school, what's the one that you absolutely love?
1: Oh, Abbott Elementary. (laughs) Abbott Elementary.
0: Now, I thought you were going to say, oh man, what's the movie?
1: With Joe lean Clark? on me with Joe Clark. Come on, right, Joe so Clark. The gag is the gag is uh, for all my frontline family and people who are outside. I am like the Joe Clark of Atlanta, so it's like give them a bullhorn and let them go, and and that has always been like an insider joke. Yeah, that I'm the Joe Clark of the crew. But yeah, lean on me definitely was a I, you about to make me start saying quotes that are not appropriate for the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll bleep. Okay, so we got all that out of the way. So now we're going to get into why you're running for school board. Yeah. A lot of people know who you are, but let's give them a little bit more background. Right. Um. Why this race and why now?
1: Yeah. Um. Wow. So it, it's funny because uh, when I was here the first time, uh, while I was running for council, your question was, "Why aren't you running for school board?" Right. Um. And, and the truth of the matter is that the Atlanta Public School Charter. Uh, At that time, until April of this year, said you could not be a active classroom teacher in any school district in Georgia and serve on the Atlanta Public School Board at the same time. Um, and and so, you know, I've, I've heard some criticisms or people who lob suggestions that I'm just, you know, politically aspirational. But the truth is, is that I'm academically aspirational. I want to stay in the classroom. I want to continue to serve kids, which is why I ran for council at the time, because it would allow me to be on council, still be in the classroom. I did not run for school board at the time because the rule wouldn't let me. Um, we lobbied uh, ever since for the last two and a half years at the state legislature uh, to get the law changed to allow active teachers to be able to serve in their classrooms while being on the board at the same time. Uh, shout out to Representative Park Cannon and Senator Jason Estevez, who sponsored uh, the legislation. Um, and for those that don't know, only four percent of democratically sponsored bills get passed through the state legislature. And the legis- legislation that we lobbied for and pushed for got passed. It was signed um, on the, the governor's desk, uh, a couple weeks after my son passed. Um, and it was something that had, had been in the works. Uh, we're running right now because as we look, uh, across our school board, we have no individuals who have served in a classroom since the pandemic or after the pandemic, to add that rich perspective to the board. Uh, but moreover, we have no one who looks like the reflection of the fathers of the majority of the children in our school um, who happen to look like my babies. Um, and so right now, we have a huge gap, both in the perspective of teachers on the board, as well as the perspective of Black males on the board. Uh, and so we're running to make sure that we're bringing both of those rich and much-needed perspectives to the school board.
0: Well, there are no males on the board at the moment. Correct it's all female board. Correct. And I don't know if there are former teachers currently on the board.
1: I believe there are two um yeah. that that have taught uh previous to the pandemic.
0: Mhm. So when you think about the school board and the superintendent, what is it that you envision your role will be as a school board member?
1: Yeah. Um so as far as the superintendent goes, the, the that is in my opinion The biggest, most important, most vital vote that the new uh, school board body will be making. Uh, Right now, we're talking about having had uh, four different superintendents within the last four years here in the city of Atlanta. And that's a lot of disruption. Um, I I know this as a person who has worked under different um, principals at schools, how disruptive that could be at the school site level. So you just imagine at a larger scale the impact that that happens when you have so much turnover with superintendents. What's going to be important is that we, for the same reasons that I believe my candidacy brings a lot of value to the the school board, is the same things that we need to be searching for in our next superintendent. I personally advocate for someone who has actually served in a classroom, but as well as someone who has served as a principal, because your principal uh, is someone who is by nature of the job had to deal with your teachers, your other administrators, your uh, central office level folks, your superintendents. So you want someone with that type of skill Um, We, you know, have done a disservice in education and that many times the superintendents are the people that we pick at the top are people who have never done the job before. And our schools are not just businesses. They're not just buildings. They are a lot more than that. And the pandemic showed us that, right? Like when schools shut down, Food insecurity became the big topic. Housing insecurity became the big topic. Access to mental health care became the big topic. So when you're bringing in someone who just comes from a Fortune 500, 100 company to be your new executive over schools, they're thinking about things just from the numbers. They're thinking about things just for... Uh, the, the policy in it. They're not thinking about the human factor. They're not thinking about practicality. They're not thinking about how do, uh, policy that is created in good intention and idealistically, how does it play itself out at the ground level? And so you need people who understand, uh, where the gaps are and the opportunities to be able to turn policy into real promise, um, and outcomes for kids.
0: What do you think is going to be your biggest learning curve as a board member if you're elected?
1: um just kind of behind the scenes like how certain things work you know getting the legislation passed how the meetings operate um it it would be like the more nuts and bolts operational things um but i believe i'm well-tooled and equipped to be able to navigate that and pick it up uh quickly um beyond having relationships and endorsements from those who have served on the board previously uh Matt Westmoreland included um uh city councilman By- Byron Amos included these, you know, being able to tap into people who have done the work, done the job, uh, is very helpful in understanding, you know, what needs to be done or what's the most efficient way to get it done. Uh, you know, I happen to have a degree in public policy. Um, I obsess in, in nerd out, uh, about policy, about procedure, about, uh, how our bureaucracies work and that type of thing. Um, it, it is what I know to be the way to get real change, like long live change, beyond our years change. Um, and so that's where, you know, I focus my, my attention on now.
0: Are there particular policies that you want to enact? Or is it, do you Are you coming in and saying, you know, here's my, this is a four-year term, so here's my four-year agenda?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, one of the big things that I've been pushing on is increasing the teacher pay from $54,000 where it is now to $65,000 within the first five years of, of me serving, which means, of course, we're going to have to get one more term um to realize that five year mark. But
0: have you busted that out? What would that mean for the budget?
1: Right. So listen, when we're spending sixty percent of a one point six seven billion dollar budget on our central office, there there is money there. Um and so if we can flip our budget on its head um and and pull the money down back to the schools, we can make this happen. Um and I'm fully aware of uh the additional costs. And I, I wanna note I had a uh opportunity to interview education secretary cardona uh in la uh in january Just early for this context, year
0: that's the united states secretary of education
1: correct uh who serves under the biden administration um i had an opportunity to dialogue with him in front of a room of about you know 500 teachers and uh there was a uh, one teacher who who whose son was about to graduate college uh, who wanted to become a teacher, and she she's talking to Secretary Cardona, and she says to him, "My son says he wants to be a teacher," and she starts coming into tears. And I don't want this life for him. And it sounded like she was talking about her son saying he wanted to enlist in the military during a war time. This is this is like how teachers are 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 talking about what it's like to teach, mm-hmm. um, given the climate of our schools, given the uh, undervalue that, that we realize through low compensation, just nationally. Um, and I dialogue with them and I said, well, Secretary Cardona, what do you think is a realistic salary that if we had a base salary for teachers, what should that look like? Um, and at the time he said hundred thousand dollars. And I think as a teacher, idealistically, it sounds great, but I pushed back on him because the reality is you know many school districts couldn't push their teacher salaries to $55,000 a year without you know blowing their budget completely out of the water so when we have these conversations about teacher salary you know i push back on politicians that try to put down numbers that are unrealistic um and that are not attainable I believe that $65,000 is definitely attainable given the $1.67 billion we have, the $23,000 we spend per student. And also I'll say, if you're going to spend $390,000 on a superintendent, then what does it say when you pay a teacher less than what HUD considers to be low income to start teaching? If we value our superintendent so much, should we not too value our teachers who are the people who provide direct services to our babies? Should not our teachers be able to afford to live in the city that they serve in? Should not our teachers not have to have secondary jobs to supplement their income so that they can return and do the work? And this is coming from someone who I, I teach in Clayton County. So I make less than an APS teacher. I think I, for the first time, maybe cracked 50000 before taxes this year. So when I talk about this, I'm speaking from it from the perspective of a teacher who had to get a side hustle, who side hustle made teaching a side hustle. And there's a lot of teachers like that. And unfortunately, what happens is when those teachers get successful in those other endeavors and other jobs, they leave the classroom. And so now we lose this richness of uh, lived experience outside of the classroom that can now add value in the classroom. And then now you have teachers who are looking at, you know, the classroom is maybe just a pass through until something else works. And our classrooms deserve more dignity than that. What happened to the 25 year, 30 year teacher?
0: So what's keeping you in the classroom today?
1: Our babies. It is is a uh, ministry for me to show up in our classrooms. Like less than 1.3% of all teachers are Black men. 80% of our teachers are white women. So it is more likely that our babies are not being taught, nurtured, cared for, uh, interacted with by somebody who looks like their dad. So I understand the importance of of just my presence alone being there, but moreover, just being uh, uh, an aspirational person, uh, someone who they can see does well for themselves as an entrepreneur, someone they can see is respected uh, for their their voice and their perspectives throughout our city or throughout the country, especially in the realm of education. Uh, for, for my students, it's kind of like they feel like they got one. They feel like they, they, they got uh, someone who they can touch that they also aspire to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, and too often, I, I think that the, the biggest gap for our kids, more so than it is access to resources or money, is access to networks. Access to people who have access. And so I provide that opportunity for a lot of our kids in that you know, I'm a lot of celebrities, favorite teachers, or I'm a lot of politicians, favorite teacher. Um, And so I help to bridge the gap between the kids and all the rest of the world that wants to have an impact or influence, but they just don't know where the entry point is. Um, And, and so that's what it looks like to restore the village. It's just my part of it to be focused on education while everyone is focused on everything else.
0: Okay. So you mentioned teacher pay. Yeah. Are there some other policies that you're particularly focused on?
1: Wow. Um, Yeah. I mean, increasing access to advanced uh, course uh, courses for kids in other schools that maybe don't have as many AP teachers available to them because maybe their school doesn't have enough students to allocate for additional teachers to give access. Um, I think we have an opportunity to be a lot more innovative in that way. Uh, For me, what that looks like is creating hybrid classes out of your advanced placement classes at some schools that may offer it. Um, hiring a per- paraprofessional to be on site with the babies who are remotely taking a class. So if you got a teacher at Midtown or North Atlanta that's offering a class that you don't have at South Atlanta or Thera or Doug or Mays uh, or Washington, then you get the opportunity to, you know, tap in from that class hybrid. But then also what we do better than what we did during the pandemic is that we provide uh a paid differential for the teacher teaching hybrid. So I taught hybrid during the pandemic where I had kids on Zoom and I had kids in person and I'm going in the chat and I'm commenting on Zoom and then I'm responding to the kids in person. And it was doing two jobs at one time and they didn't pay us a cent more for doing that work. Um And the same thing happened at APS. So what I would encourage us to do is now incentivize teacher pay to increase to give them the opportunity to teach these hybrid classes, which will now provide for more access um, to more kids to be able to take those courses. Um, but there there we have a lot of work in the way of innovation um to do. Our schools right now are hyper focused on creating generations of kids to be good employees for other people. But what I love about this generation is that uh these young people understand that their their promise is not in being a job taker, that their promise is becoming job makers. And we are not, uh, as school systems, focused on the economy of now. Um, so let me pause you sure. there.
0: So help us understand the curriculum and how a curriculum is set. And I'm asking this because if you think about the pace of change of technology, how are the kids of today going to be equipped? If I'm in eighth grade and changes are happening, how am I equipped by the time I graduate high school? Oh. For the economy of four years from now,
1: right? Yeah, I mean you you have to be uh, innovative. So for for those that don't know, the school board does not set curriculum. Your superintendent does, right? Uh, but that does not mean that as a, as a board member, you can't influence, that you can't advocate for, that you can't um, make very clear what best practices are and what type of vision you want. For schools, it's the superintendent's job to see it through, um, and I will not be that board member who is passive about uh, things like that. And we've kind of seen that in Atlanta. A lot of um, you know, state policy comes down or what have you, and it's just a lot of passiveness um, about how people feel or whether or not they support these notions. Um, and I think we have to move away from that. We have to uh, start speaking up and speaking out about what needs to change. Um, so. What I see in terms of the curriculum and where we need to be uh, more innovative is we have to prepare kids for the attention economy that we live in right now. Like the new uh, welding jobs, the new HVAC jobs of today, which, by the way, we need that uh, apprenticeship opportunities and those things. We do need to bring that back as well. But also, are we teaching kids about camera work? Are we teaching kids about, um, man, how to pod, right? Like, uh, I had an opportunity to, to have a partnership with, um, Spotify and they have a, a app called Soundtrap, which allows kids to, uh, collaborate and do podcasts right from their phone. It's like a web-based technology and they could be in four different places and on one pod. Um, and so I bring that in my class. So instead of doing essays, they might create questions with chat GPT and then have the conversation on Soundtrap. Um, And so now they're showing what they know through a medium that they receive information in today's time. Um, Whereas sometimes, you know, folks would look at something like a chat GPT and say, oh, we don't need that in schools. Or we'll say, you know, AI is going to steal your job in the future. And the fact of the matter is, is that is a, a technologically illiterate perspective to have. Truth of the matter is that AI won't take your job. Someone who's using AI will. Right. And so if we're not even thinking about uh coaching and educating our kids on how to use the technologies of today to make themselves more marketable and efficient, then we're missing the mark.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about schools. You're in a public school? Yes. Is it a charter? No. It's I teach at charter. Charles
1: Drew um uh school and high school in Riverdale Clayton County, which is a traditional <laughs> public school. Right. Um average income is 21,500. Uh, our district is 100% title one. Um, so it's, uh,
0: so what's your take on school choice, which I know is something that is continuing to be a big topic,
1: right? I, I just think first, like we have to do a better job at defining and nuancing the conversation. Um, because you know, school choice could mean private school vouchers, and that's something that I staunchly am, am opposed to, um. But also, I think you know, then you start having a conversation about charter schools, um. And I I am not favorable of for profitly uh, for profit managed charter schools. Um. In fact, my son. Can you give
0: us an example? Just give the public yeah. an example of a for profit charter. Um.
1: Uh, Wesley Wesley International. Uh. Some six, seven years ago, was uh, managed by a for-profit company called Imagine Schools. Um, and essentially what happens is they're kind of like real estate plays. Like this this company comes into the city, they buy land uh, where the school will be, they build up a facility for the school, then they get the charter, and then the, the charter draws money down, you know, and sometimes, unfortunately, these schools get placed next to neighborhood schools where the population is already struggling, right? Um, and so the the money gets drawn down. Um, they get a little less than your traditional schools do and then they supplement with other monies that they get privately or through grants. Um, they also pay their teachers less and their teachers don't have to be certified either, um, which is a whole nother conversation. But
0: Charter school teachers don't have to be certified.
1: Correct. Correct. Uh, if The one thing you could do to improve the charter system is actually create a way for their teachers to get certified. That would help our kids a lot. But their... Um, you, The school will end up having to pay um, a lease on that property. So in Wesley's uh, example, they paid a million dollar per year lease for the facility that they were on. Um, parents band together and we separated the school from that for-profit um, entity, Imagine Schools, and we put in a nonprofit board which had parents and community members and stakeholders. And then we actually removed the, the school itself from that building. Um, And we took a lease on through APS for the Ed Cook building on Memorial Drive, uh, which cost the school $10 per day. And by the way, like my family, we live right behind where the school was. It was walking distance. It actually was more inconvenient uh, for my family to support the move. However, it brought over a million dollars of additional resources that can go directly to our teachers, go directly to our classrooms. And it was better uh, for the school in, in its entirety. Um, and so we supported the move uh to do so um so that is an example of like where that has existed um and and sometimes they do exist where you know it's it's really a real estate play, and so we gotta be mindful uh, about that. I do think um you know that families should should have the autonomy to choose to do. Uh, what they feel is best uh, for their family. But I think the best thing that Atlanta could do is make our traditional neighborhood schools, the choice place to be so that we put out any alternative out of business because the, the draw, um, the desire. But The is reality to
0: be here. is that takes time.
1: Yes, it does. But, but we got to be honest about that conversation because I think too often folks throw out policy and things like it's just going to microwave change everything. And it, It does not work that way, especially around education. It is a labor of love and it takes time. Um, And it doesn't, it's not linear. Um, Just coming from a teacher's perspective. I mean, you can throw all the best strategies to the babies. You can give them all the resources. You can make sure the environment is exactly what it needs to be. But, you know, that baby's still going to have to process on their time. And every child processes differently. And every child needs something different. And some of them are getting what they need sooner than others. So it's not... Um, it, it can be sausage making uh, to to see and realize change, and so that also demands a level of like resiliency, trust, and patience on behalf of the public of parents, um, to be able to to stick things out long enough to see the outcome.
0: What do you think is most broken in Atlanta public schools right now?
1: the fact that the majority of the big decisions are being made by people who have never served in classrooms before. Like if, if we take, if we take a step back and and we look at, well, why is it that, you know, these policies don't land well, like we went all digital for math. We use experimental software and put it in the classroom uh, and said, let's see what happens with math. And it hasn't worked for us. And we haven't pivoted out of it yet. Uh, the pandemic we were afraid that books would physically spread germs, so we locked them into to storage rooms um and they've been slow to roll back out. Well, Harvard studies prove that when you uh read physical text, your ability to comprehend your ability to retain information your ability to learn how to read is better well, our we're kids
0: moving into a digital world right I mean, I think about my nephew who's in high school, he doesn't have books. Everything is on a Chromebook.
1: Correct. But also what has happened to literacy since? It slid. So at some point we have to realize, what's that?
0: I said, my nephew can read. Yeah, no, for sure.
1: For sure. Uh, But, but also, uh, you know, what I actually find the biggest determinant when it comes to literacy is, did your parents read to you at night from when you were a baby to age five? Um, I, I find that with my students who have the higher Lexile, it's that, and then two, do you read for entertainment? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's those two things are the differentiator. And if we could get more of our kids to actually read for fun, like desire to read, that changes the game. Our big problem, our How biggest do you problem do is desire.
0: Everyone knows that there's a literacy
1: problem. Incentivize. What
0: incentivize.
1: What so, does that look like? I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a kid, uh, Pizza Hut and that book it program. Pizza pan
0: pizza. Come
1: on. Right. So we all think we all have that shared lived experience of I read the books, I did the book report and I got this reward for it. And that generationally had an impact on us. That's well, not happening
0: in schools anymore. No.
1: So imagine our kids There's can get no some scholastic... Fortnite VC. Imagine they can get some 2K VC. You know how what? These kids will be all in the books all day long because something they care about. There will be some currency back, uh, for that further off. You know, I, I do think we should have some conversations about earning it, earning to learn, right? Um, there's a, a company called Knowledge, uh, out of California. They created a cryptocurrency that is attached to academia, right? It's called a K 12 crypto coin. So listen, imagine kids earn cryptocurrency for the grades that they get. And it goes into a crypto wallet that upon graduation, they would get custodial possession of. And they could, while they're in school, use that earned cryptocurrency for the grades that they're making to pay for supplies or things within the school or snacks within the school. So it's still a medium of exchange and it has some everyday benefit to them. Um, But as more kids earn and are coming into the system and they're being awarded for getting good grades, it improves the value of this, this crypto wallet upon graduation. Um, you know, and that's just a idea, but I do think we have to get serious about incentivizing kids because we saw what happened with, um, with our, our population of how many kids have been lost since the pandemic. Um, and a lot of that is, to be honest, our kids are working. Our kids are working, especially at a time where like You know, inflation is as high as it is. Cost of living is as high as it is. These babies are of working age. Like while I was teaching hybrid during the pandemic, I had kids with a phone on Zoom propped up on a cash register while they're in class or propped up on a clothing rack while they're teaching at Goodwill, um, while they're working at Goodwill, while they're in the middle of class. Um, A lot of our kids are working. Um, And so the reason they're working is because times are hard. So we've got to figure out a way to bridge that.
0: So what's the role of the city, the state to better support families, to better support school districts when these types of things are happening? Yeah. What would um, you like to see?
1: Collaboration. What does that look like? To be honest, like you have to have cross-governmental relationships. I I think when uh, we talked back in 21 and it was like a, well... You're a teacher, you know, what's up with the city council thing? And and what I said to you then was, well, there are things that from the school um, purview, you can't address, but you can from the city side. And there are things at the city side that can't be addressed that have to be addressed at the county side. And sometimes there are things that have to be addressed at the state side. And so do you have the working relationships to be able to say, oh, we have a need in this area, but this is outside of our purview, but I have the relationship to cross-collaborate with another governmental entity to get the job done for our kids. And so if you... Take a look at the fact that I got legislation passed at the state house this year. There's evidence of my cross governmental uh, relationships, but also if you take a look at my endorsements, we're endorsed by the majority of elected officials in the city of Atlanta. Ten of the fifteen city council seats, or eleven, um, in the entire Atlanta delegation minus maybe one, um, has endorsed our campaign as well. Um, so there, there is evidence and proof of you know what. Maybe if our school board members were people we recognize, maybe if school board members were people who had relationships throughout the city, the state, the county, we would get more things done. If you don't have the relationships, you can't even start the conversation or you're maybe only having the conversation when you're sitting at some quarterly committee meeting. But are you having those conversations over dinner? Are there can do so. are
0: there specific things that you would want to lobby the state for, or the county, or the city?
1: Yeah. So free access. So what we need is a municipally owned 5G internet service. I talked about this two years ago. I remember. But it is something that I still agree has to happen because we have a digital divide in the city of Atlanta. Twenty five percent of our kids can't get online to to high speed internet when they go home. So that's something that at the city side we're We're going to have to address on the county side it's easing access direct access to mental health care services. So that's something that on the human health services side, we're going to need our families to to come in on. But the other thing is if we're going to tackle literacy, then we're also going to have to tackle adult literacy because we've missed so many generations of the past. And what do we do if we teach our kids how to read, but they go home and can't get help? So there's opportunity at the city, opportunity at the county to be able uh, to get some wraparound services around our families too, around literacy.
0: Final question. What do you say to the person who is listening to this interview and
1: says, well,
0: I don't have kids in APS or my kids have aged out. Mm-hmm. Why should I care about this election?
1: Yeah, uh, two two reasons. Uh, number one, if kids are not engaged in schools, they'll be engaged in streets. And so in a year and a half from now, a year from now, we're going to see all the the city council races come up. We're going to see the mayor races come up and everybody's going to talk about crime like they do every single municipal cycle, Right. But the truth is that the antidote and the remedy to crime issues is on the ballot today. Today. So I need for us to be focused and understand the long game that if you say we don't need more of this or we don't need that, right, that the reality is the thing you do need is on the ballot today. Are you engaged?
0: So just like last time, just look right in the camera, say your name, what seat you're running for. You can make a personal appeal. You can ask folks to go to your website, whatever it is you want to do. Okay. <clears throat> you can rap. You
1: funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we ready. <laughs> All right. Um in 150 years of educating babies in the city of Atlanta, we have yet to have someone serving in a classroom and serving on our school board at the same time. My name is Alfred Chivy Brooks, and I present to us the opportunity to elect Atlanta's first active classroom teacher who happens to have a degree in public policy, who happens to be someone who is very engaged in our community, who happens to be a 13-year APS parent. And I'm asking for your support. I'm asking for your vote because the voices of teachers, the voices of fathers, the voices of our community deserve to all be heard on our school board. And in this election, we can make that happen. You can go to brooks for A-P-S, apscom uh, to learn ways that you can support our campaign. But most importantly, I just ask you to get out and vote.